afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. Uh, if you listened to my last episode, the part on the West Virginia Cold War, you're going to remember that we left off in the summer of 1913. West Virginia's newly elected governor had put an end to the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike, and Governor Hatfield had extended a few olive branches to the striking miners. Uh, one of the things he did was he released Mother Jones from prison in June. I don't think that he commuted her sentence, and he certainly didn't pardon her. I think he just kind of let her go. There was also 30 strikers who had been imprisoned and were being held under a military court-martial. Uh, he did release those from custody as well, and he brought people in from the state to improve conditions in the Holly Grove Tent City. But other than these small offerings, Governor Hatfield had come down solidly on the side of the coal operators. I said in the last episode that the war years sort of kept things at a low simmer. Working conditions had not improved for the miners through the war years. It's just the need for coal for the war effort had sort of overshadowed any of the workers' concerns. But the miners still worked long shifts. Uh, in fact, one of the things that the Paint Creek miners were asking for in their strike was a nine-hour workday. I think the normal shift at that time was about 12 hours. And that was not 12 hours four days a week. That was 12 hours five and six days a week. A lot of the mines still paid in script, which... If you'll remember from the last episode, script was basically money that the coal operators would print up. It was also coins. They would actually strike coins. It was not legal tender anywhere except for that company's stores and businesses. So that forced their miners to spend the money that they made working for the mines to pay money to the coal operators for goods and services. And a lot of times these stores and businesses, the prices were greatly inflated over what they would pay if they could make it into a town and buy things from a general store there. And most of the miners still lived in company housing, which meant if you lost your job, not only did you lose your income, but you also immediately lost the house that you and your family lived in. Something that made an appearance, something that was new during the war years after the Creek Cam Creek strikes was something called yellow dog contracts. Now, this is something that had existed before then, but the coal operators really started to, to make this a condition of employment. And basically what the yellow dog contract said is the miner was agreeing not to join a union or to support union activities in any way. And this was not just boilerplate that they were making the miner sign. They were draconian in enforcing this contract, um, many, many miners were fired just on the suspicion of supporting union activities. And the Baldwin Feltz Agency was still a huge, prominent figure in the ongoing struggles in West Virginia. The miners referred to them as the, the Baldwin thugs. They were still being hired out as muscle, basically just harassing, striking Miners, uh, intimidating anyone they thought might join the unions. And any time that a coal company wanted to evict somebody from their house, it was Baldwin Feltz agents that they brought in to go in and throw these miners out of their homes. Now, in 1920, the UMWA elected John L. Lewis as its president. That's a name that a lot of you will probably remember from school again. Early in 1920, uh, 
shortly after John L. Lewis became president of the UMWA, the miners around the country went on strike, and they were successful in winning themselves higher wages. As we discussed before, a lot of West Virginia at this time was not union, uh, so this was mines in, uh, like out in the Midwest, Colorado, places like that. Uh, it really didn't affect the miners in West Virginia, but John L. Lewis felt like the time was right to, to really ramp up efforts to bring West Virginia into the fold. So in 1920, they sent, in the spring, they sent a lot of their top organizers. Uh, John L. Lewis actually sent Mother Jones back to the area. And through the spring of 1920, about 3,000 miners in southern West Virginia signed their union cards. And the, the coal operators, as you can imagine, were not happy about this at all. Evictions and harassment quadrupled during this time. One of the coal mines that was involved in a lot of this harassment and anti-union intimidation was the Stone Mountain Coal Corporation. They owned a mine and their coal camp was just outside a small town in Mingo County uh, called Matewan, West Virginia. Matewan was not owned by a coal company. It was an independent municipality. Being an independent town, it had its own elected mayor and its own sheriff. I don't know if the sheriff was appointed or elected. But the mayor was a man named Cable Testerman, and the sheriff was named Sid Hatfield. Now you're going to hear the name Hatfield quite a bit. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Hatfield and McCoy feud. I don't know if Governor Hatfield was related closely to the Hatfields from the feud, I'm sure he was related in some way. Uh, but Sid Hatfield was a great nephew to Devlance Hatfield. Uh, Sid Hatfield's grandfather and Ants Hatfield were half-brothers. Mayor Testerman and Sheriff Hatfield were both very pro-union. And in May of 1920, uh, one of the well, the owner of the Baldwin Feltz Agency, the co-owner, uh, was a man named Thomas Feltz. And he had two brothers, uh, Albert and Lee Feltz, both working for him. Albert Feltz had been in Matewan and was trying to bribe Mayor Testerman to kind of look the other way to the strong-arm tactics of the mine guards and the Baldwin Felt Agencies. And he had actually was there trying to convince... Uh, Mayor Testerman to allow the Baldwin Feltz Agency to install machine gun nests on some of the buildings in the town of Matewan. Now, Mayor Testerman obviously did not allow this to happen, but on May 19th, 1920, 13 Baldwin Feltz agents arrived in Matewan on the morning train. Uh, they met up with Albert Feltz and they spent the day in the Stone Mountain Coal Corporation's coal eving miners. Now, the first home that they evicted, the woman's husband was not home. And several witnesses saw the Baldwin Feltz agents evict this woman and her children at gunpoint, and then they threw all of her personal belongings out into the street. Now, several people went into town to alert the mayor and Sheriff Hatfield of what was going on. Now, at the end of the day, the Baldwin Feltz agents came back into the town of Matewan. They ate dinner at the hotel there in town. I believe the hotel was called the Urias Hotel. 
And after dinner, they started walking back to the train station. They were going to catch the evening train back to Bluefield, West Virginia. As they were walking back to the train station, Mayor Testerman and Sheriff Hatfield confronted them in front of the local hardware store there. Sid Hatfield had warrants for the arrest of the Feltz brothers. Albert Feltz produced a warrant for Sid Hatfield's arrest. Now, from what I can gather, uh, Mayor Testerman said that the warrant for his arrest was fraudulent. Everything that I have read says that it was, in fact, a fraudulent arrest warrant. Uh, It was supposedly from the Justice of the Peace of Mingo County. It turned out that had not actually been issued for his arrest. I found different reports as to who fired the first shots, if it was one of the Baldwin Feltz agents or if it was Sid Hatfield. My gut would say that it was probably Sid Hatfield that fired first. The Baldwin Feltz agents had to know that they were in a town full of people that hated them. I can't imagine them just starting a gunfight willy-nilly. But a gunfight did break out, at the end of which seven of the Baldwin Feltz agents were dead, including uh, both Albert and Lee Feltz. And there were three townspeople that were killed. Uh, One was just an unarmed bystander. One of the townspeople that was killed was a young man who had just very recently joined the Union and was subsequently fired. And the third person that died was Mayor Testerman. Now, I did come across something very interesting that I had never heard. After the gun battle, a couple of the Baldwin Feltz agents that survived reported that Sid Hatfield is the person who shot Mayor Testerman, and they were spreading the rumor that Sheriff Hatfield had killed Mayor Testerman because he was having an affair with Testerman's wife. Now, on the surface, that sounds like the Baldwin Feltz trying to discredit somebody that was on the other side of this conflict until you find out that Sid Hatfield married Caleb Testerman's widow 12 days after the gun battle. And that's just not the actions of a grieving wife. So I kind of lean toward the possibility that there was an affair going on there. And maybe Sheriff Hatfield saw his chance to to clear the board. In the aftermath of this gun battle, uh, it's always been called the Matewan Massacre. Or at least that's what I always heard it. I did come across it while I was researching for this. A lot of times it's just called the Battle of Matewan. Uh, but of course, the, the unions touted this as a major victory for their cause. And the UMWA redoubled its efforts to organize that area. Now, through all this, uh, Sid Hatfield was charged with murder uh, for Albert and Lee Feltz. Um, he was acquitted, but all through his trial, he was getting national media attention. Every day after court, he would stop and speak to reporters. And he sort of became the poster boy for the union, unionization efforts in the in the area. Martial law had to be declared once again following this to try to maintain order in Mingo County. Sid Hatfield actually took over Cable Testerman had owned a jewelry store in Matewan. Sid Hatfield took over that property and turned it into a gun store. Miners, obviously, were a big part of his his customer clientele. He was basically arming the resistance, if, if that's the way you'd like to put it. For the next year, all the way through the following summer, 1921, tensions were rising, uh, violence was escalating. It was not uncommon 
to find striking miners or union organizers beaten and left on the side of the road for dead in southern West Virginia. And when I say not uncommon, I don't mean that happened once or twice. That was they were finding one or two people a week that had been either beaten half to death or just outright murdered on the back roads of West Virginia. In August of 1921, Sid Hatfield had been charged with someone had blown up a coal temple in McDowell County. Uh, Sid Hatfield was blamed for it. I couldn't find anything definitive that said if he was involved with it or if the coal operators were trying to discredit him. But he was standing trial for destruction of coal company property, basically. On August the 1st, Sid Hatfield and his deputy, who was also indicted in this case, a man named Ed Chambers, arrived at the McDowell County Courthouse in Welch, West Virginia. And as they arrived at the courthouse, a group of four Baldwin Feltz agents met them on the stairs in front of the courthouse doors. Uh, The Baldwin Feltz agents pulled out pistols and opened fire on Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers. Sid Hatfield was killed instantly. Ed Chambers was shot multiple times. Uh, He fell over backwards and rolled down the stairs to the sidewalk on the street. And there are several eyewitness accounts that stated that with Ed Chambers' wife begging the agent not to do it, one of the Baldwin Feltz agents walked down the stairs and put his pistol against the back of Ed Chambers' head and murdered him. None of the Baldwin Feltz agents were ever indicted. And this is another thing that I want you to keep in mind, that this is... America in the 20th century, this is the modern age. Of course, it's the very beginning of what we consider the modern age. But again, this isn't the Wild West. This is a sitting sheriff and another law enforcement killed by privately hired security goons, not in public, but on the stairs of a county courthouse. It it just boggles my mind that things got this bad. As you can imagine, this really inflamed the situation. Uh, The miners and the union workers felt like that the coal operators had just straight up, and it's true, they did, they just straight up assassinated sort of the figureheads of the movement. Um, Violence on both sides really escalated quickly. In September, uh, there were two union leaders, uh, a man named Frank Keeney, and Fred Mooney traveled to Charleston uh, with a group of Union miners, and they met with the then-sitting governor, Ephraim Morgan, to present to the state government the miners' demands. Governor Ephraim basically just shot shot him down completely. Um, much like Governor Hatfield before him, Morgan was firmly in the camp of the coal operators, He was not interested in the union cause or the miners' plight. He basically just wanted everything to run smoothly and busy along as it always had. Once Governor Morgan refused to hear the miners' grievances, the miners there in Charleston, and there were thousands of them, I don't have an estimate of how many they were, but they started discussing marching to Mingo County and taking matters into their own hands. Uh, Keep in mind, martial law was still in effect in Mingo County. Uh, Union miners, and again, this was 
exclusively aimed at the the workers. Uh, the coal operators were really not getting any scrutiny from the state troops that were there. Striking miners for very minor offenses were being incarcerated. Uh, some of them were put on trial. Most were just locked up and held there. But the miners that were in Charleston, West Virginia, began to plan a march to Mingo County to end the martial law, to release the imprisoned miners there, and to forcibly unionize the county. Mr. Keeney and Mr. Mooney were not on board with this idea. And in fact, Mother Jones made several speeches trying to dissuade the miners from taking this action. Basically, how the miners felt about that was that Mother Jones had lost her nerve, and she may even be working for the coal operators at that point. But a man named Bill Blizzard took charge of the Union miners. Keeney and Mooney actually fled the state when the march began. Uh, they went to Ohio to get out of the area. As the, as the miners marched south from Charleston, a lot of the unionized counties in the north of West Virginia miners started coming down to join the march. One group of miners out of Kanawha County actually commandeered a passenger train and took it south so that they could catch up to the march as it made its way down to Mingo County. But it's estimated that by the time the miners reached Logan County, West Virginia, they were about 13,000 strong. And if you, I'm sure everybody's heard the term redneck, uh, this army of miners is actually accredited with where that term comes from. One of the things that they did so that they could visually tell who was a union supporter or union miner from a mining guard was all the members of this army, which is basically what they were at this point, uh, would, they wore red bandanas and they became known as the redneck army. And that's where that term comes from, the rednecks. But the sheriff of Logan County was a man named Don Chafin. And Don Chafin was staunchly anti-union. I don't know if that was just his personal feelings or if it had something to do with the fact that he was actually on the payroll of the coal operators in Mingo County. And what they were paying him for was to keep the unions out. I'm sorry, not Mingo County, Logan County. And some estimates I've seen say that he was getting paid upwards of about $32,000 a year to make sure that the unions did not get a foothold in Logan County. $32,000 is a good chunk of change now. Can you imagine having that much extra money in 1921? It's, I mean, they were basically making him a millionaire to be a union breaker. But Don Chafin had assembled about 300 deputies to defend Logan County from this army of miners marching south. Uh, Logan County neighbors Mingo County. So he basically saw himself as the last line of defense to keep the Union from winning this. As these two armed groups got closer to each other, President Warren Harding decided that he needed to step in. And he sent a delegation down to speak to the Union leaders and the miners. And he threatened to send federal troops in to put a stop to this, if they did not disarm and go home. Bill Blizzard and the other union leaders agreed for the miners to disband, and the column actually broke up and the miners started heading back north. Apparently, Don Chafin did not want this to end without a fight. The same day that Bill Blizzard announced that the 
Marsh had been called off and that the miners were returning home, a group of Don Chafin's deputies opened fire on a group of Union sympathizers in a little town called Sharples that was just north of the deputies' defensive line on the mountain. Now, when the when the miners heard about this, they they were enraged, obviously, and they immediately turned back around and headed straight for the defensive line on Blair Mountain, just outside of Logan, West Virginia. The two armies made first contact with each other on August the 29th. Now, the very next day, Governor Morgan sent the commander of the West Virginia National Guard to take command of the deputies defending Logan. Uh, he was a man named Colonel William Eubanks. Now, the Battle of Blair Mountain lasted for five days. Now, the the miners far outnumbered the deputies. Uh, like I said, I think the deputies had around 300 people, and the miners had about 13,000. But Don Chafin's forces had had time to dig in and prepare a defensive perimeter on Blair Mountain. They also had much better weapons. There was a couple of machine gun nests in place on the mountain, and the deputies had better rifles. The terrain also favored Don Chapin's forces. The terrain in that area is incredibly rugged, and it is difficult to walk up a lot of those ridges just on a hike, much less carrying a rifle and being shot at while you're doing it. So even though the miners had a big advantage in numbers, the the battle was a stalemate. It lasted for five days. There were two instances where the miners came close to breaking through the lines and being able to push into Logan, West Virginia. But in the end, they never did actually accomplish that. At points in the battle, the co-operators and probably Don Chapin and the governor may have actually had a hand in it as well. But somebody brought in World War I veterans of the Air Corps and had them flying over the miners' positions and was dropping explosive and poison gas bombs that were surplus from World War One, which these bombs were not terribly effective against the miners, but that does become kind of important later in this story. But on September the 2nd, about 27,000 federal troops arrived in Logan County. Now, a lot of the miners at this time had been veterans of World War One. A lot of them had served in the armed forces. And while they did not have a lot of qualms about shooting coal operator employees, a lot of the miners did not feel comfortable shooting at their fellow veterans. And Bill Blizzard, at that point, actually convinced the miners that it was it was time to to pull back from Logan and, and go back to their homes. An interesting little side note to the miners pulling out, a lot of the miners were fearful of being arrested and having their weapons confiscated. So a lot of the Redneck Army, before they left Blair Mountain in Logan County, went into the woods and hid their rifles, hoping that they would be able to come back and, and reclaim them later. And for years, and in, truth be told, I'm sure there are still several guns in those woods that people haven't found, but for years after that, incident, people that were exploring the area or historians studying the battle site were finding guns that the miners had hidden under logs and in caves and in hollow trees. And that went on for decades. And, and like I say, I guarantee you there are still several of those guns out there that nobody has found yet. 
after everything was said and done, and I saw several estimates on all of these casualties, but about 100 miners died in the battle. About 30 deputies were killed. And once the army arrived, uh, the Army Air Corps was flying planes over the battle to do reconnaissance. One of those planes crashed on its way back to the airstrip, and it killed all three crew members on board. So there were actually three casualties among the Federal troops as well. A total of 985 of the Union miners were indicted. Uh, they were charged from everything from murder to conspiracy to commit murder. A lot of people were charged with accessory to murder. A few were actually charged with treason against the state of West Virginia. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know you could commit treason against a state and not just the country as a whole. Um, A lot of the miners were acquitted, uh, but there were a lot of people convicted, and there were a lot of people that spent years in prison following this battle. Bill Blizzard was indicted. Obviously, he was the leader of the march. At his trial, his defense attorneys brought one of the bombs that the coal operators were dropping on the on the miners' positions. Uh, they had collected an unexploded bomb, and they actually brought it into the courthouse. And they did that to show how brutal the tactics of the coal operators and the state government had been. Uh, Bill Blizzard was acquitted, by the way, and I think that that unexploded bomb had a, a great deal to do with that. But that was the end of the West Virginia Coal War. Now, the coal operators, with the help of the government, absolutely won the battles. But the national media attention that this open gunfight had brought to the the issue really started to sway public opinion. And, of course, FDR's New Deal, a few years later, would install a lot of labor laws. And part of the New Deal was that it gave workers the right to form unions if they so desired. And there was a bill passed in 1932, was called the Norris LaGuardia Act. And part of that law, it officially outlawed yellow dog contracts. So the coal operators did win the battles. Uh, In the end, the union won the war. And like I said back at the beginning of the first episode... This whole story is just something that does not sound like it could possibly happen in modern America. Now, there are, I think PBS has a special about the West Virginia Coal Wars. I think I've watched that at some point, actually. It's been years. Uh, But there are some things out there you can consume if you want to learn a little more about this subject. Like I say, part of it is is that I grew up in this area. My family, coal mining background, so... This is something that's sort of near and dear to me, uh, but I find this story fascinating. I can't believe it's not better known. I certainly hoped you enjoyed listening to me ramble on about it for a while. I enjoyed bringing this to you. Again, this fascinates me to no end, but I really enjoyed passing this information along to you. And again, I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you are enjoying the show, I would appreciate a review. And if you'd like to leave me a comment, send me an email at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com. Thank you once again, and I will talk to you soon. Have a good evening.